0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the portion that John read a few moments ago. John chapter 11. Gospel according to John chapter 11. This past week, a number of us here in this congregation have attended funerals and we are grieving the loss of dearly loved ones. This account before us here in John chapter 11 of Jesus and Lazarus is timely for us. We want to consider it this morning by God's grace. This 11th chapter of John begins shortly before what we know as Passion Week, and it introduces us here in the very first verse, this man named Lazarus who lives in Bethany. Now, at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 10, Jesus has gone to a Bethany beyond the Jordan, And we know this, it says in verse 40 of chapter 10, it says that Jesus went away beyond the Jordan into the place where John at first baptized. Well, at the beginning of this gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 28, it identifies where this is, this baptism beginning for John the Baptist. It's in a city called Bethany. But this Bethany here in chapter 11 is a different Bethany. It's much closer to Jerusalem. Now, they're both east of Jerusalem, but this particular one that Lazarus and his sisters dwelt in was just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem. We're going to see in verse 18 of chapter 11, it says that Bethany was nine to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs or 15 stadia, about two miles, three kilometers away. It's very close. So as you're heading east from Jerusalem, what we would encounter here is you're coming down from that temple mountain, you go into The Kidron Valley, and right up from the Kidron Valley, you have the Mount of Olives. And it's right past that, that you encounter the city of Bethany. Now, John's Gospel is the only Gospel that mentions this man named Lazarus. His Lazarus, his name, it's a Greek form of a Hebrew word that means Eleazar. God has helped. And as is so often the case in Scripture, that, that name has great significance in the chapter before us. Now Luke mentions two of, of, of Lazarus's sisters, his, his sisters Mary and Martha, in chapter ten of Luke. And I I think A. T. Robertson is right that Mary, the, this one sister, is mentioned anonymously in both Mark in chapter fourteen and Matthew in his chapter twenty-six. But as far as we can tell, all three of these siblings, they lived happily together. In the same house, they seem to be unmarried. And in verse 2, John gives this parenthetical note, identifying Lazarus' sister Mary as being that Mary, it says, which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, it's interesting because he's not going to tell us about that incident until the next chapter. And so John is assuming a familiarity with something that he's not yet told us about. And we read in in Mark 14, Jesus saying that that anointing, that this woman, who I say I believe to be the same Mary, he said that whereversoever the gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, that also which this woman hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. So this in verse 2 identifies who this was, and in verse 3, it says that his sisters sent unto him, unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They want... Jesus to know that this Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, was sick. Now, we're going to see in this chapter that they really thought that if they could just get Jesus to come to Bethany, where he was, if he could come soon enough, Lazarus could recover. There was an urgency here. This is a preventable death, and they need to get Jesus there. And then Jesus says in verse 4 that this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, he's contrasting this with the sickness that is unto death. This past week, we've had funerals for loved ones who who did have sickness unto death. Lazarus' sickness was not of that kind, Jesus is saying, and he's letting them know the purpose of the sickness. It's for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. There's there's something unusual about this sickness with Lazarus here. It's going to reveal something about Christ in an unusual way. That's what he's hinting at here that's what's on the surface here in verse 4, but there's more going on here than meets the eye because as we go through this account, be looking for these double meanings. There's a, there's a double meaning to life and there's a double meaning to death here in John chapter 11. So be, be thinking about that as we go through this text. I mean, think about it. Jesus died and his death was a glory to the Father. So the death and the glory are not an absolute contrast here. Well, verse 5 sets up this apparent contrast for what will happen next. It says that Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Martha, uh, Mary, and Lazarus. doesn't mention Mary by name, but we know that's who it's talking about there. But then it says in verse 6, and here's the contrast, but when he had heard that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. So he knows Lazarus is sick. He's gotten the message for this, and they're saying, come quickly, he's sick. And Jesus knows it. And he loves Lazarus. And he doesn't go. But everything that he does in the context of this is is love for them. We know that. It says he loved them. And so having established that, John tells us that he deliberately holds back for two days despite the urgent request of his sisters. He's staying across the river. He's on the other side of Jordan. Bethany's on the west side. He's on the east side. He's holding put. And then when his disciples, after those two days, he says to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. So he waits those two days, and then he says, okay, we're let's go to Judea. Now, his disciples heard that, and they remembered something. <laughs> they remembered something that happened just a few days ago in chapter 10. In chapter 10, towards the last half of the chapter there, Jesus is explaining to the, the Jews in verse 24 that were gathering around him. And they say, tell us if you're the Christ. And he says, the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father, literally we, are one. And then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, they're going to tell him that he's blaspheming, and that's why they hate him. But he's teaching them the doctrine of election. He's teaching them that his father has sovereign choice free will over who he saves. And they hate these claims of this, this rabbi. They hate him and they want to stone him. And the Jews remembered that. The disciples remembered that. And so here in chapter 11, this is just shortly thereafter. It's just a few days thereafter. And and they say, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. He's wanting to go back to the same place that was in the last chapter. Jesus' disciples weren't going to easily forget this. They're, they're eager to keep a safe distance from Jerusalem. Rabbi, they, they just tried to stone you, and you're, you're going there again? And Jesus gives this remarkable response. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the, same, in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Now, the Jews would do an interesting thing with their clock. They would actually divide up the daylight into 12 sections, and they would call those hours. And what that would mean is that in the summertime, an hour would be longer. In the wintertime, an hour would be shorter. But that's how they divided things up. There was 12 hours in the day, literally. That's how they did it. And so Jesus is building on this reality of how they did timekeeping, and he says to them, If any man walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. Now, as we said, Jesus' sayings here abound with double meanings often and especially in the Gospel of John. And so there's a a double meaning here, just like there was a double meaning in verse 4. Now we see this double meaning in verse 9. The light of the world on the surface is referring to the sun, S-U-N, which provides those 12 hours of daylight that he just referenced. But underlying this is the fact that Christ himself is the light of the world. And he's telling them that by walking in that light, there would not be any stumbling. So in so many words, Jesus is saying this, the Jews are not the real danger here. Being in danger of being stoned to death, that's not the issue here. The real danger is walking in the night. The real danger is of having no light within you. See that in the end of verse 10. Because there is no light in him, a man will stumble in the dark. And so we know there that he's transcending from just earthly light to spiritual light, light within. The, the sun in the, in the sky does not give light within us. So there's a double meaning here. The real danger is of walking in darkness, spiritual darkness. Verse 11, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. You could render what the disciples are saying like this Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. He's going to recover. It's likely that Lazarus, part of the sickness here was a, a struggle to find sleep, a struggle to find rest. And so he's finally fallen asleep. And, and they're saying, Lord, if he's finally catching up on his rest, this fever that he has that's, that's on his deathbed, it will leave him. He'll, he'll do better. Now, it's almost surprising that they didn't understand what Jesus meant here because, I mean, did they seriously think Jesus was going to travel two to four days to get to Bethany? To wake up a man who's fast asleep—it just—it doesn't make any sense. And and they say as much to him. They say, "Master, this this doesn't make any sense. You, you really, you're really going to do this?" But you see, they're they're so preoccupied with an excuse to stay as far away from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the angry Jews and their rocks in Jerusalem that this westward travel makes them deeply uncomfortable. They're trying to avoid it as much as they can. Well, Jesus dispels any confusion on their part. But first, John does so to the reader. See that in verse 13. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Now, there's something that we want to notice here. The fact that Jesus would speak of Lazarus, his death, and they would speak of that as sleep. What does that mean? That means that scripture often speaks of death as falling asleep. Very often in the, in the Old Testament genealogies, what do we read about the king? So-and-so lived so many years, and then he slept with his fathers, and his son reigned in his stead. Now, Scripture's not doing any sugarcoating when it says this. This isn't Scripture being politically correct here. It's a euphemism for physical death, because physical death is not ultimate, final death. All those who physically die will be resurrected. So physical death is only temporary. It's not sugarcoating it. It's a, a bold confession about the looming reality of eternity. That's what we're saying when we say that someone falls asleep. We're confessing something about the eternal state and the resurrection. Verse 14, Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Well, now the disciples don't have any doubt in their minds, do they? they? They know for certainty what's really going on here. Lazarus is dead, and they're not going to Bethany just to disturb a sleeping man. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus unto his disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, some have pointed out that the, the die with him could grammatically refer to Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, and he's saying, let's go to Bethany so that we can die with Lazarus. But I rather think that he's referring here to Jesus. Let us go to Bethany, to Judea, to greater Jerusalem so that we can die with Jesus. Now, this looks on the surface like a pessimistic, a morose statement on the part of Thomas. Let's go that we may die with him. But let's not miss the commitment here that that, that Thomas has when he says this. You remember when Jesus called his 12 disciples, he said, follow me, follow me. And Thomas took this charge seriously. He's committed to following the master. And, and notice he even, he says, let us go with him. He's actually encouraging his fellow disciples to go as well. Verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now, Jesus waits two days, as we just read, before he begins to go to Bethany. And because of that two-day wait, some have speculated that this journey from Perea, possibly where he's at, to Bethany takes an additional two days, totaling four days. And then others, like Matthew Henry, say that the actual journey from Perea to Bethany would have taken four days, and so Jesus waited for Lazarus to die before he broke that news to his disciples. And then he begins the journey. Well, we just don't have enough information to know one way or the other. But what we do know is that by the time that he gets to greater Bethany, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And that's enough time for his body to begin decomposing. So Lazarus is fully and uncontroversially dead. No one could reasonably live in denial that the miracle he was going to perform on this day was indeed a miracle. Lazarus was really dead. verse Verse 19, many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was still in the house. Now, do you remember that when Jesus was at... Their house. That Martha is the one who's cumbered with much serving, and Mary's the one who's sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's a there's a difference of personality between these two sisters, and true to character here, Martha's the one who's eagerly taking that responsibility of hospitality, or maybe she's just biased for action. She's a doer, and and she knows that Jesus is on the outskirts of Bethany, and she comes out to come and greet him. But then Mary, she's still. It says in verse twenty, in the house. Mary's the more contemplative one. She's the one with the grief maybe more internal and and, and paralyzing grief and she couldn't be bothered to leave the house yet. Well, Martha comes to Jesus and she says to Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my young, my brother had not died. What is she saying here? She's saying, Lord, this was a preventable death. If you could have just come here faster, it wouldn't have happened. And this is likely a refrain that they were repeating among themselves. Mary's going to repeat the same phrase in verse 32 here in a bit. Jesus' tardiness was was top of the mind for these sisters and likely for the other Jews that were mourning with, with them. And in essence, they're placing the blame of Lazarus' death at the feet of Jesus here. But then it's as though Martha realizes how bad this sounds. So in verse 22, she corrects herself and says, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Well, now we get to the heart of the matter in verse 23. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's almost as though Martha's saying, I, I, I know Jesus. I know he will rise again in the last day in the in the resurrection martha's confessing the doctrine of the resurrection at the last day she's assenting to that she was not as the sadducees that said that there is no resurrection she knew that there would be a resurrection and that's to her credit praise god for this confession that she gives he shall arise again in the resurrection but at the same time this this verse 24 it seems to come short of the mark based on Jesus' response. You see, resurrection is not just a far away idea in the sweet by and by. It's not, just, it's not just an event that's going to take place. We often speak of the event of the resurrection as an event that will take place. But it's more than that. The resurrection is a person. And that person was standing right in front of her. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. And the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this. You know, we have in Scripture the, the I am sayings of Jesus, that the ego amies. You're familiar with that phrase, I trust. Well here in Scripture we have a beautiful ego Amy. Ego, Amy, hey, Anastasis, kai, hey, Zoe. Anastasis is a Greek word for resurrection. Ego, Amy, hey, Anastasis. And then Zoe, we get zoo, zoology, life. I am the resurrection and the life. The article's in front of it. He doesn't come representing the idea of resurrection. He doesn't come conforming to some kind of an external prototype of what resurrection would look like. He is the definition of resurrection and life. He's saying, Mary, you're talking about the resurrection in these abstract terms in the future. It's not an idea, and it's not an event. It's a person. And then he says literally here, these participial subjects here. The one believing in me. Verse 25. The one believing in me. Even if he should die, he will live. And then verse 26 continues this participial subject form here. It says, everyone living in me and believing in me will no never die. It's a, it's a double negation in the Greek. It's very emphatic. You could could translate this, everyone living and believing in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The word death here is used in verses 25 and 26. And again, this word death has a double meaning here in these two verses. And on the surface, it might seem to be that Jesus is saying that those who believe in him will die and then live, and then he turns around and says that they'll never die at all. And Which is it? Well, Jesus is not contradicting himself here. This This word death in verse 25 is speaking simply of physical death. And the word death in the next verse in 26 is speaking of spiritual death. In other words, everyone living and believing in Jesus might fall asleep, but he will live. And he will no never die. He will never, ever die. Do you believe this? For all who live and believe in Christ, he is our hope in life and death. And as we shed our tears for those who have fallen asleep, and we do, what is our comfort? It is this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The believing one, even if he should die, yet will he live, and everyone living and believing in him will know never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that everyone living and believing in Jesus will know never die? You know, it's, it's one thing for us to confess this as a familiar phrase, perhaps, a, a paper confession, But it, it takes on completely different dimensions when you look at the casket, doesn't it? And that was the context in which this was being discussed. You see, Jesus is instilling in Martha a theology of the resurrection that's robust enough to handle the reality of her going and looking at the tomb of her dead brother and confessing the one believing in Jesus, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and that everyone living and believing in him will no never die. And in that sense, the departed loved one has not died. He or she has fallen asleep. One day, to be awakened out of sleep. It's the the phrase Jesus uses. I go that I may awake him out of sleep. When Christ comes again, he's going to awaken his people out of sleep. It's, it's, a, it's a parallel concept to what he did with Lazarus. Verse 27, she saith unto him, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. You see, nothing that Jesus said sounded unorthodox to Martha. It didn't sound wrong, didn't sound off to her, and she readily assents to it. But it's possible that she still hasn't grasped the full magnitude of what she just heard. In light of her objection in, in verse 39, she certainly is not prepared for what's going to happen next. Well, in verse 28, having said that to Jesus, she goes her way, it says, and calls Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, the master has come and calleth for thee. The master, that the teacher, he's here, he's calling for you. And so Mary finally arises from the house and she comes to Jesus. Now, Jesus still hasn't entered city limits, if you will, of Bethany. He's still outside the city. He's close. And we see that the Jews mistakenly thought that she was going to go to the grave to weep there. And so they follow her out the door. And it it seems that the secret summons that Martha gives to Mary is not so secret after all. Well, we see that Mary and the Jews come to Jesus. And then verse 32, she repeats that same thing that Martha said, Lord. Lord. If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. This was preventable. Where were you? If you had just been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now this word weeping here is, in the Greek, it's, it's wailing. It's, it's uncontrollable crying. It's the kind of crying that you see at funerals often. And it says that he groaned in spirit. It's was troubled. And, and there's an anger aspect, actually, to this groaning in spirit. A.T. Robertson translates it this way. He was moved with indignation in spirit. And it, it's important for us to understand something here. Death is an enemy to Jesus. Now, he's the Lord of all things. But death's an enemy of Jesus. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. And and it's, it's not just the people of God's enemy. It's Jesus' enemy. Do you, you realize in, in 1 Corinthians 15 there, when Paul, he's quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Paul, by inspiration, is saying that the last of those enemies that are Adonai's enemies, death, Is going to be footstooled under the feet of King Jesus. It's his enemy. So why would Jesus, grown in spirit, be filled with indignation? He's angry because he's engaged in hand-to-hand combat with his enemy death, the last enemy to be fully defeated. And he's seeing firsthand the effects of that enemy on those whom he loved. Verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Sometimes people ask, well, why did Jesus weep? Well, we don't have to overcomplicate this. I submit to you that the reason that Jesus wept was the reason that you and I weep at funerals. If someone's confused why Jesus wept, they may not understand what John meant earlier in the prologue of his gospel when he says that the word became flesh. God became man. It was the man, Christ Jesus, who wept at Lazarus' funeral. He didn't have to conjure up these tears. He cried real tears of real sorrow from a troubled spirit. And there was a true change that came about in Jesus' temperament. And and that understanding does no violence to the doctrine of divine impassibility. We're, We're dealing with the hypostasis here. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, behold, how he loved him. Verse 36. When we weep at funerals, we're not undermining our confession that Jesus is the resurrection. He who was the resurrection wept at a funeral. It is good and necessary that we sorrow. The one who is the resurrection wept at the death of the one whom he loved. Behold how he loved him. That was evidenced to the audience of the Jews by Jesus weeping at the, at the funeral, at the tomb. Well, we see others who tried to find fault with Jesus as they would later find fault with his weakness on the cross. Verse 37, some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? See, they're starting to scratch their heads a little bit, starting to find fault with the Messiah. In their eyes, his inability to prevent Lazarus' death Delegitimized, invalidated previous miracles. You see that, that criticism, that unbelief that is a counterpart to this narrative. And it's going to come into play again in the text in the moment that we'll see here. But they say, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died. Couldn't he have done this? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself comes to the grave it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. You know, we're familiar with the, the, the burial practice of burying underground, and it was the case that the more common people in this era would have been buried in the ground. But Lazarus is a family that has means, and he's put in a cave, similarly to how the patriarchs were buried. And this careful burial in a tomb points towards the resurrection. It's a testimony to that final day when all of our bodies are reunited with our souls. Jesus says, verse 39, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. It's as though Martha's saying, Lord, are you, are you sure about what you're doing here? You, you really want to do this? This seems like a bad idea. It's almost like she's afraid it's going to, be an offense to the Lord. Lord, are you, are you prepared for what you're going to smell here? I, he stinks. Well, I love how God uses the feeble answers of his people to further the praise of his glory because you know how we saw earlier in verse 24, Martha's answer, her inadequate, it seems, answer. And then that gave rise to Jesus' powerful statement in verse 25 and 26. And here it's the same way. Martha's objecting to his command to open the tomb is making it abundantly clear to everyone. To us, the readers, to the audience, Lazarus is completely dead. And his resurrection will be completely miraculous. Lazarus isn't just mostly dead. He didn't just need some fresh breezes to stir him back to life, some kind of a resuscitation. There's an early rabbinic teaching that a person's soul would hover around the body for three days before finally departing, at which point the body would then begin to decompose. We don't know if that rabbinic teaching was already ensconced at this period. It's very possible. But Martha's, regardless of that, Martha's making it very clear that Lazarus is not in any kind of holding period here. There's no disputing the state of Lazarus. There's no question about it. Lazarus is decomposing. His body is seeing corruption. He stinks. He's been dead four days. Verse 40, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? Notice that the believing one sees the glory of God. Jesus was rebuking Martha here. He's saying, were you listening earlier, Martha? Did you hear what I said? Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Martha's objecting to resurrection personified and, and his proposals with interacting with this dead body. And he's he's telling her to hold her peace. He's saying, believe, and you will see the glory of God. So the Jews complied, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. You know, the Jews had beckoned Jesus to come and see, verse forty. Verse 34, so Jesus had come, he had seen, he'd seen with his eyes. He'd seen the stone, he'd seen the cave. But now he's lifting up his eyes into heaven. There's a picture here for us. When we look down and we behold the dead, we must also look up to heaven and, and pray to the Father. And we see that prayer. Verse 41, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus is giving the reason here why he's praying aloud. He's saying, Father, you always hear me. But I'm praying aloud for the sake of those that are around me. I want them to hear it. So that they may believe that thou hast sent me. That was the intent. It was the same thing he told his disciples earlier. He said, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. And now he says, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. He's bound head and foot with these grave clothes. You, You don't walk when you're bound hand and foot with grave clothes. We aren't given details of how Lazarus came out of this tomb. He was hardly walking, but suffice it to say that the same power that resurrected Lazarus was the same power that brought him forth from the tomb. comes out of the grave and Jesus says loose him let him go many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him this is the answer to Jesus prayer I am praying that they may believe thou hast sent me many of the Jews believed on him but then verse 46 but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And John goes on after that to explain how the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together and plotted to kill him. So at the end of this resurrection, some believed, some did not. And, and there's, those are the only two responses to the claims of he who is the resurrection. You either, you either live and believe in him or you reject him. And you secretly plot to kill him. The way that the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests. And you either tell others about Jesus in adoration or you tell others about Jesus with disgust. Verse 46, they told them the things Jesus had done. They didn't like it. Everyone's talking about Jesus. They're either saying what great things he has done for them or they're sharing in disgust. Jesus. Whether they live in him or not, everyone's talking about him. And that, that brings us full circle back to verses 25 and 26. Do you believe? Do you believe that the believing one, even if he should die, yet will live? Do you believe that everyone living and believing in him will, no, never die? Believe you this? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, shall no never die, will never ever die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this?